This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And you may have noticed we've had a little bit of a break since our last episode with Bryson DeChambeau, not only to give you the required time to digest all that Bryson shared, but we've also had a bit of a travel in the last couple of weeks as we were out supporting our PGA, LPGA, and European tour clients around the world. We were in Sea Island, Naples, Dubai, and we were also joined by 15 other coaches in Dallas and Vegas for our inaugural Alta Study Tour, where we toured a few high-performance sports organizations to uncover some edge-earning lessons from outside of golf, where we visited some uh, Major League Baseball team, NFL team, a couple NBA teams, Cirque de Soleil, and the UFC Performance Institute. And we were joined by coaches from Australia and Canada and Scotland and London and uh, and the U.S. And as we reflect on all of the lessons learned, we'll be sure to devote some time on an upcoming episode to share those lessons. So stay tuned for that. But we're back in Dallas now, back to our normal schedule, and really excited to share a conversation with an absolute legend in golf, Butch Harmon. Anyone who makes a living coaching golf has a massive debt to pay to Butch, who has paved the way. And this conversation is yet another example of his willingness to share and help others out. I know that we at Altus hold Butch in very high regard and, and revere him and all of his accomplishments and helping the best players in the game for several decades. He's voted as the best in the business by his peers for several years running. And anytime someone has sustained such a, a high level of success for a long time, it's clear that they have figured out some things that we should all strive to, to emulate and better understand. And as you'll hear, he has no shortage of wisdom and stories from his many years at the top. He was kind to give us over an hour of his time as Cam picks his brain and tries to tease out as many edge earning lessons as possible. So sit back and enjoy episode 20 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Butch Harmon and Cameron McCormick. So I've spent my playing and coaching career in admiration of our guest today, and I've spent a good amount of time around him in recent years as well, given our paths cross, traveling the world. But before these paths crossed, I was a 30-year-old novice coach looking to grow my knowledge base, and I sent a letter to him to see if he'd let me come shadow him in his coaching activities, and in true style, he replied and said, of course. So I packed and left and, and spent two days in Las Vegas. And that's way back in 2002. And every time our paths cross, Butch Harmon's willingness to give continues, passing on fun facts, stories, and, and wisdom nuggets. And yet another demonstration of his generosity and desire to help others in, is in joining us today on the Earn Your Edge podcast. And just real quick, before we hear from the man himself and for the benefit of those living under a rock, some important notes and accolades. Butch Harmon is the son to a legend pro and master's champion father of Claude III, who we've had on the podcast before and now coaches the new number one in the world, Brooks Kepka. He's a service veteran, a PGA Tour winner, coached to far too many major champions and number one ranked players in the world to list. He's coached to celebrities, presidents, kings, and the perennial number one ranked golf coach in the world. Butch, thanks for joining us. Oh, Cam, happy to be with you. Was it way back in 02? Gosh, time flies. It was. Time does fly, mate. Time does fly. <laughs> so I guess the first question I've got for you, mate, is with that list of accolades, what on earth is left for you to accomplish? 
Oh, my gosh. As you know, uh, every time we teach or give a lesson, we learn something we didn't know. And at 75 years old, I'm still trying to learn. I'm trying to get better at what I do and broaden my my mind on the way I look at things and see things. And as you know, the, everything has evolved in, in teaching, the, the physics of teaching, the physical capabilities of players. They're getting bigger and stronger. Equipment has changed. Uh, the advent of so much uh, technology and stuff. So you have to continue to try and just uh, get better and better at what we do. And in, in light of that, I guess, speaking to professional development, are there certain things that you, I guess, would point to and say, this was foundational that allowed me to develop a set of skills that I didn't have over the years past? Or are strategies that you might advise other rookie, novice, fledgling professionals use to develop their skills? Well, I was fortunate enough to to grow up uh, in a family with a father that not only was a great champion to win the 1948 Masters, but also, I think, one of the greatest teachers that's ever lived. So I was around it every day of my life, even when I didn't even realize it. And I think the thing that myself and my brothers have learned from our dad was that the ball is pretty much the barometer. In other words, where the ball starts, the spin on the ball, the trajectory, the curvature on the ball – gives you a quick understanding of the path of the swing and the club face angle at impact. And so I grew up before there was cameras, before there was any of that, just relying on my eye to tell me what I was seeing. And I think today that's kind of a lost art. I think uh, a lot of the younger coaches especially are so enamored with technology. And I'm not anti-technology because I use it all. But I, I think they've got away from using their eye and letting the ball help them learn. And so to me, that's one of the, the basic things. The other thing I think basic fundamentals don't change. Mm-hmm. It takes no athletic ability at all to set up to a golf shot, you know, grip, posture, ball position, alignment. And yet nobody thinks about it. Even the great players that you've taught and I've taught get out of whack with just alignment, for example, which is something that should be so simple because we don't pay attention to it. So I, I'm a great believer in any kind of lesson I give in basic fundamentals. Yeah, I would echo that point wholeheartedly that having some solid ground to stand on, some repetition over time of ball position, alignment, posture, angles, et cetera, et cetera, goes a long way to solving all that ails players. Well, you know, Cam, if you think about it, if you get set up wrong, you're going to have to do something in your swing to get out of that. Because if you don't, you're never going to hit a good shot. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why you think that way and the way, why I think that way, that that's the first thing we look at. Right, for sure. So let's speak about change real quick. What's one thing uh, or maybe a couple of things that's changed in your coaching as you reflect back five years or even 10 years ago? I mean, you brought up the point that over time players change, but yet at the same time there's this rate of technological change that then may require uh, push the needle on us uh, developing a different set of skills. Well, I think the biggest change was when we went from uh, wooden drivers to, to the metal-headed drivers and titanium-headed drivers. The ball launched so much different than it did with a wooden club, and, and the golf balls changed about the same time. And I think when you go back and look at using a persimmon-headed driver and a soft ball with all the spin on it, the mechanics of the way you swung, the way you stayed behind the ball with a lot of reverse C, a lot of release to try and get the ball way up in the air. Uh, totally changed when we went to uh, metal woods and then we went to solid balls. We changed our, our way of approaching the ball, our angle of attack into the ball got different. And you had to watch that when you taught. And it's like I said, if you don't continue to try and get better at what you do, you're going to get passed by. I mean, I've I've been a golf pro for almost 56 years now. And gosh, what I taught 10 years ago is different than what I 
teach now, what I taught 20 years ago is different than what I teach 10 years ago. Now, I'm not going to give the money back. <laughs> That's just because we, we learn and we get better at what we do. And I think you have to, you have, to have an open mind. You have to be willing, and you've always been wonderful at this. I remember uh, when you came and spent a few days with us, how much we enjoyed having you, because we were asking you as many questions as you were asking us. And you have to to learn from other people. If if someone gets to the point where they think they know it all, they're in trouble. My dad used to have a great line. He's, this is true in golf and in, in life. He says, it's what you learn after you think you know it all that's some of the most important things. And when I do seminars, one of the things I try and tell young teachers is, look, you need to sort out, sort out the, the teacher that you don't agree with the most, that's had some success, but you don't agree with anything he does, and go to his seminar because you're going to have you're going to leave there having learned something you didn't know before you got there. And the more you learn, the better we get at what we do. Right. Indeed. There's an expression that goes, I go back to oftentimes, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, which dovetails nicely <laughs> into my next question. I like that. As out, out of all the boys, who was the smartest in the room growing up? Uh, you and your brothers. Well, uh, Dickie was far and away the smartest as far <laughs> as intelligent goes. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Billy and I are at the bottom of the food chain. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> but but you had some strength given age and uh, development over those in the in the teenage years, so you could uh, drop the hammer pretty quickly, couldn't you? Oh yeah, they weren't messing with me. You didn't have to worry about that. <laughs> they, 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 they were smarter than to try and take me on, which is not something I'm very proud of. But that's just the way it was when we were kids. Now, how much of, how much around the campfire activity conversation about golf and teaching golf and playing golf happened in the household, given Dad's prowess as a as a pro and a player, and you guys developing your golf skills? Well, it happened a lot because uh, whenever there was tournaments in the Northeast, there was always somebody at our house. I mean, you'd have Ben Hogan over there. You'd have Jackie Burke over there. You'd have Mike Suchak over there, Dave Marr over there, Jay Bear. I mean, it's just the, the, the names go on and on of all these great players. And they're sitting around drinking their scotch and talking, and we're just listening. You know, And <laughs> at the time, you don't realize what you're hearing you it just kind of became a normal thing for us you know we just whenever there was tournaments around everybody just hung around dad's cooking steaks and they're sipping on their whiskey and we're just listening you know i can remember when mr hogan would come over to the house and you know and and mr hogan gets a very bad rap uh, he was a, an introvert as a guy he was one of the nicest people i've ever met because he was a good friend of our family. So if he knew you and you were on his inner circle, he was phenomenal. He was willing to answer questions and help you. But, you know, he didn't feel comfortable in a crowd and stuff. And I think I gave him a bad rap. But as kids, we just hung out like that. And, and for me, my mother had 10 pregnancies. So that there was always a golf tournament, a major championship, I think starting at about 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, that I went to with my father, every one of them. And there was no ropes in those days, Cam. You just walk right down the fairway. I mean, my dad would be playing a practice on Ben Hogan, and I'm standing right next to the bag watching him play. Mm-hmm. And these are things that we took for granted then and never paid much attention to until we got older and we started thinking back, like, wow, how lucky were we to see all this stuff? No doubt. And I learned how to play golf caddying at Wingfoot for my dad when I was young, when I was 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And he would play with all these great players and I'd see, say, Ben Hogan hit a shot on one hole, a cut forward up out of the rough to a back right pin. It was just unbelievable. And when I was done caddying, I'd take, get my little canvas bag and some balls, and I'd go out, I'd go on that same hole, and I'd throw a club ball down there and a, take a club, and I'd try to hit the same shot 
I just watched him hit. And I didn't know how he did it, but I had the visual to see how he did it. And I, that's how I learned how to hit a lot of different golf shots. Yeah, by modeling what you saw, right? Exactly. You spent a lot of time clearly around your dad watching him play, watching him coach, I imagine, coaching some of the best players in the world. You just described this front row seat, not only to golf and performance, but also the fireside chat, if you will, the campfire discussions. Can you allude to or elaborate on what you see as what I call coaching superpowers? And you mentioned one earlier that if we rely too much on technology, what we tend to do is we tend to dull the blade of intuition and observation that is such a massively important skill. And that's a skill that you taught me way back in 2002. But in my mind, there's got to be another set of coaching superpowers the best in our game. And in fact, probably any sport, if you want to go that far, demonstrate. Well, I think first of all, everybody's different. As you and I have had this conversation through the years, I don't believe in systems. I don't think systems help everybody. Systems can have a system meaning you teach everybody the same thing, swing the same way, because nobody's the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody's a different height, different flexibility, different strength, just a different handicap. I mean, in, in my 10 years with Tiger Woods, I think everybody that came to my golf academy said, look, I want to swing like Tiger Woods. I'd go, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'd like to swing like Tiger Woods too, but we'd have to get in his body. And I think you have to have an awareness of the physical capabilities of who you're teaching, uh, what they can do. Do they practice or do they just play? How much time do they spend? Uh, what is their golf IQ, as my dad used to say? And that's how you dictate how you're going to work with them. To, to think that everybody can swing a golf club the same way, I think is absolutely ridiculous. Look, look at the Hall of Fame. Let's take the greatest players of all time. Let's take Ben Hogan, Sam Snead. Uh, Jimmy DeMerit, Byron Nelson, we go, we go into modern times of Nicholas and Palmer and Trevino. None of them swing alike. Every one of them is totally different. And if, if any of those guys had ever gotten with a young teacher like we have a lot of them today and tried to make them all swing the same, we'd have never heard of any of them. Right on. So it's, it's the old timers taught themselves how to swing. Most of them came out of the caddy yard and they were self-taught. And like I said, the ball was told them everything. Where the ball went, Good or bad, let them know what they were doing swing-wise. And, and look, I love technology. I get a bad rap. People say, oh, well, you know, he doesn't use any launch monitors or anything. Of course we do. We use, we use all the forms of technology. I just don't think it's the end all. I don't think you can rely strictly on that. You can, you can trick these, these launch monitors, whether you use a TrackMan or whether you use a, a Foresight GC Quad like I do. You can make a swing that will give you good numbers, and you look up, and it's a terrible shot. Sure. And so there's more to it than that. And I think you have to be so open with, you, with your eyes and your mind when you teach. I mean, how many times do, do you have people come to you and say, hey, I want to swing like Jordan Spieth? And, you know, you, you, nicely you'd say, well, that's probably not possible. Yeah, sure. You'd like, to, you'd like to say, are you kidding me? What the heck's wrong with you? you <laughs> there's know? only one Jordan Spieth. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's only one of everything. Yeah, so my comment before coaching superpowers and ability to see, to use that um yeah, I guess perceptive ability. Another one that you just alluded to is the BS detector. You've, you've, got, you've got to be able to call BS on the technology as it stands in front of you, tells you something happened, and you and the player look at each other like, whoa, that tech's crazy, right? So how do you implement technology in and use it for benefit then? Well, for me, I use uh, the launch monitors more for equipment changing and stuff. In, mm -hmm. in tour players, if we're going to a new manufacturer, a new ball, or new drivers, new shafts, 
I think it's a fabulous uh, tool to have because it gives you instant numbers on spin and stuff. I mean, you can see if the ball's spinning too much. You and I can tell if it's not spinning or spinning, but it'll give you numbers that will help you know this shaft or this head or this ball does X, Y, Z. This one doesn't do that. So I think that's wonderful for all of that. Other thing I think is it's for, in, in the golf school sense of it, it's for people, it just lets them realize that what you're telling them actually is what's happening because you've got some numbers to prove that. But once again, and I'll, I'll, you'll hear me continue to say this, it's not the end all. You have to rely on your eyes and you have to rely on your experience and, and what you've seen in the past. I, I can give you a hundred examples of giving a lesson to a guy that had maybe one of the worst swings you've ever seen, but yet when he hit it, the ball was a good shot. Mm-hmm. And you say to yourself, how in the world did this guy get that club on the right path and squared impact with that backswing? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you'll see someone maybe five years later that has a very similar type of dipsy-do, twirly-do, or whatever you want to call it in a swing, and they can't make contact. And a, a light goes on in your brain going, oh, I remember that guy. Right like this and this is what he did on the way down to correct that position and these things you put in your memory bank that you see and, and you've seen them before and the more golf swings you see and you know this for a fact you've taught for a long time the more swings you see the the better you get number one it's seeing the the good things and the bad things but the better you get of, of how in your brain that helps you when you see strange things happen right and that brings me to i keep going back to this coaching superpowers the the coaches that um, I surround myself with, yes, uh, mostly those that with either here in Dallas or on tour, but also those that come visit with me like I did with you, they want to know how to get better. And a lot of it boils down to time on task or you got to put your butt in the saddle and absolutely and, and learn different patterns. And the, I guess the, the in vogue term is matchups, but it's another way to say it is just blueprints, right? And you you had that blueprint from years ago and you can solve that whatever ails that person that's standing in front of you right now because you remember it from 5, 10, 15 years ago what you did to solve that unique challenge. Absolutely. I mean, and a lot of, you know, I'll give you an example for me. I spent a lot of time way back in the early 90s with Sebi Ballesteros and Jose Mario Othabo. And then when I worked with Greg Norman and the three of them all had phenomenal short games. I mean, phenomenal. And a lot of what I taught Tiger Woods when he was a teenager, stuff I learned from them. Now, he had to put his own take on it. You know, I'd say, okay, I saw Seve do it this way. I saw Othabo do it this way. Seve and Greg were more early risk cocks like Phil is. And and Othabo was more of a down cock guy that spun the ball more. And I would explain that to him. I said, now, you got to put your own take and feel on it. And I think in my case, because I've worked with so many of the best players in the world, I've learned as much from them as they've learned from me. And that's been a great asset in my teaching of of all levels of golf. Mm. Going to the relationship side, in fact, before I get there, I'm going to try and recall a quote that I heard attributed to you, and you can, uh, I guess, clarify for me. I heard that someone asked you in a presentation, maybe to a section, what your system for coaching players is, and you gave them this response. (laughs) I tell you what to do, you do it, and you get better. Any truth to that? I, I think I finished it off. I said, well, here's how it works. I tell you what to do. You do it. You get better. I get paid. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> how, how, much of, how much of coaching then is not about the X and, X's and O's of building technique, refining a player's technique? Well, at the upper echelon of players like we tech, it's huge. 
because I'm a very positive person when I teach. I'm a glass half full. And I, I don't have, I don't talk about any negative things when I'm teaching. I want it all to be positive. I mm -hmm. want everything about it to be positive. And you've got to know the quality of guy at the tour level you're teaching. You have to know his personality. You have to know his temperament. You got to know when to kick him in the rear end. You got to know when to make him laugh. You got to know when to give him a hug. And you got to know when to back away and give him their time on their own. You have to know all these things. And, and every p person we teach is different. I'll give you a perfect example. I started a month ago working with Daniel Kang. She lives here in Las Vegas. She, she told me that. <laughs> just one last week and she Congratulations. And she's feisty. She's feisty and she's got a lot of demons in her head. And, and we're making a, a bunch of mechanical changes, which are starting to really kick in nicely. But I've done so much work trying to inside her head to get these demons out, to instill confidence in her, to make her realize how good she really is. And to quit having, you know, she'll talk about, well, I've got the full swing yips on the 16th hole in a tournament. I said, no, you don't. So you got yourself convinced you do. So you don't get that at all. I said, my God, you got your name on your bag. You must be good. People are paying you. <laughs> so that's a bunch of BS. Get that crap out of there. You know, let's let's play golf. I, I, she and Dustin Johnson are such good friends because Daniel grew up as a friend of the Gretzky family. And DJ is the one who's been telling her for four years because she lives here in Vegas. You ought to go over and see Butch and just get an opinion from him. And I said, look, you need to be like Dustin. Dustin has this tremendous ability that the last shot never happened. That's hard to teach, but this guy really has it. You know, and he, he gets asked all the time, how often do you think a three-putt in the last hole at Chambers Bay from 12 feet to, to lose the U.S. Open to, to your man? And he says, I never think about it. You're not going to let me go back and do it again, so why the hell should I think about it? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge asset for these players to have. Phil Mickelson has that. He drives it all over the world, and he, as soon as he hits it, he's forgot about it to go hit the next one. And I've really tried to help Daniel get over that, and she's still struggling with it, but we're getting there. So you got to get inside their heads. you got to understand them. You have to understand what happens to them in the heat of the battle, their nervous system, their adrenaline rushes, how much further do they hit an eight iron when they're really jacked up than when they played the first few holes. And you only learn that from watching and talking to them after the rounds. Uh, I'm a great believer if a guy plays a really good round or a very poor round when we go on the range afterwards, okay, on such and such a hole, what were you thinking? What shot were you trying to hit? You know, sometimes the guy says, you know, I just blanked out. I just hit a terrible shot. Okay, let's talk about that. Why does that happen? How, how can we make this better? Our job as coaches and teachers at all levels is to get the best out of our students. Now, at a, at a handicap level, sometimes they can only go so far, but you got to try and take them there. And to take them there, it's more X's. It's not as so much the X's and O's. It's not so much what equipment they're using. It's the way they think about the shots before they hit them, how they handle the situations when they hit them. And then in the real pressure situations, like the upper echelon guys we teach, how do they deal with it? You know, you look at the guys you've known that have won a lot of tournaments and they never win with the lead. They always come from behind. And, you know, that's because they're freewheeling. And then you have other guys, when they get the lead, oh, Tiger was the best, they just run off and leave you. So everybody's different. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour.
You raised a point there when in reference to Danielle Kang, and I don't know whether you heard me, but congratulations, by the way. She's a, a, an amazing girl, loves spending, time, lo loves spending time with her. Great um, kid. It's a question on opportunity cost, and, and maybe you can allude to Danielle or uh, really directly the question is, when you started working with Ricky, maybe you contrasted against your experience with Dustin. Am I wrong in saying that Ricky's changes, improvements were more radical than anything you've ever done with Dustin? And how do you how do you balance that, um, uh, whether to change or not change? I would say the two guys that I've had wonderful success with that had I, ma I had to make the biggest changes were Greg Norman and Ricky Fowler. Mm -hmm. Both of them, I thought, had mechanical flaws in their swings that when their timing was on, they played phenomenal. When their timing was off, they didn't. In Ricky's case, you know, he drugged the handle back a lot moved to the right too much and then had to get out of that, drop the club under and had to whip it through the ball. So we had to work very hard on letting the club head go first, getting the, the club head and shaft on plane. Mm -hmm. In Greg's case, he had a tremendous right foot slide in, in reverse C from a fairly long swing. Uh, I wanted it to be a little shorter and wider and get it more on top so he could control his ball flight better. So those two guys, it was a big change. The Ricky Fowler story is, is pretty funny. It, it happened, uh, let's see, when did we start? Did Phil win the uh, Open in 2013, I think, in Muirfield? And, and Ricky, you know, I, I knew Ricky for a long time. I watched him play a lot of practice rounds with Phil and the guys. So I, I pretty much knew his swing and his game. And he missed the cut at you know, Muirfield, just played terrible. And so he called me that night. He goes, hey, after your guys tee off on Saturdays, anywhere you could watch me hit some balls on the range. I said, yeah, I'd love to. I said, I'd be more than happy to. I said, yeah, you know, I said, you know, I watched you in the practice round. You're not swinging very good. He goes, yeah, I'm just totally lost, whatever. So we go to the practice tee after everyone tees off, and he's hitting some balls. And I explained to him, you know, you drag this handle back before the head goes. You, you get in this position here. Then you have to flip the club under and come from the inside. I said, now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have you hit balls in a two-piece swing. I'm going to have you take it back to a waist-high position where the shaft of the club's right in line with your feet, and then you'll just turn and let it go up from there. And I had him do it in slow motion about five or six times. You know, by now there's this big crowd coming around that's not on the course because it's Ricky Fowler. So I said, he says, do you want me to hit a ball like that? I said, sure, here, I'll put it on a little tee with a six iron I think we had. And he t I said, take it there and stop and then start your swings. He took it there and stopped. I said, go, and he just still still there. <laughs> he goes, well, what do you mean go? I said, well, start your swing from there. He goes, oh, okay. So he went there and went, and he topped the first two or three, and he was hitting ground balls. And he turned around and he looked at me and he goes, are you going to make a fool out of me in front of all these people? And I said, I think you already did that with your 36-hole score, so let's get to getting here. Let's get this button <laughs> on the right path. <laughs> the, look, the look he gave me was behind. I think he wanted to tell me that you know what. Exactly. I would have as well. <laughs> and I said, look, this, this is what I see. This is what I think you have to do. And we worked for a couple hours doing it. He, you know, he felt I said, look, go home, practice that. Send me some tape if you want. If you don't want to do it, I understand that's fine, but that's what I, I think you need to do. And, you know, the rest is we've had a great result together. And he's, you know, as you know, he's the most wonderful kid. And, and you and I are so lucky. I mean, you, you with Jordan, me with, with Ricky. I mean, these just are great young kids, and yeah, they're fun they're to brilliant. be around. But that was, that was a big change in his swing as far as a huge change. Most of the changes we make in good players, you'd have to be – or have a pretty good eye to see what we're doing. You can, if you slowed it down in film, you'd see it. And, you know, we can explain to you why we changed this, to what, you know, maybe why there was a grip change or maybe why there's a pronation of the left arm or something. 
just generalizing. Right. But you may not see it with your natural eye, but it, it, it makes a lot of difference. But in Reiki yeah. swing and in shark swing, you could really see the difference. So you have that conversation with Ricky on the range. It's major championship. He's in, uh, I guess, cut bait mode. I got to make a change. Was there a conversation at that same time about uh, how long it might take? Uh, you might call it a yield curve. Like, how long is the pain going to last before I show improvement? And I guess as a follow up to that, just in the eyes of a recreational golfer that may or may not be at, be out there listening, or a developmental youth collegiate player. What's realistic and what's your response when they say, man, it's just not, not, not working out? Well, I think you're going to have to tell them that, first of all, change takes time. I don't care what level of golfer you are. I can remember when, remember when Tiger won the Masters in 97. Mm -hmm. He broke the record. He won by 12, and at the end of 97, he wanted to change his swing because the club face was a little shut at the top, a little across the line. And I said, yeah, we can change that. We'll just do it a little at a time. He goes, no, I want to do it all right now. And I said, well, you're not going to have a very good year because you're going to struggle. He says, I don't care. I need, you know, and he only won one time in 98. And so you have to tell people, and I use that as an example a lot with, with amateur golfers, especially, you know, they'll come to your facility there and they'll take a lesson and they go out and not play very good and they just throw it out. Right. Well, they took a one hour lesson and they act like everything's going to be fine. When the best players in the world have a hard time changing, it takes them a while to do it. And I explained to Ricky, I said, now this is going to take some time. I said, you're going to get to where you can do this really good on the driving range, but you're going to fall back into your old habits when you get in the heat of the battle for a while. And for your listeners out there, if they watch Ricky Fowler now, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about because you know how he makes that long waggle and stops? Mm -hmm. And he almost looks at it just to make sure he's got it in that position. And he starts his practice sessions with that old drill of starting it right there and hitting it. And you have to be honest with people. Cam, you got to tell them, look, this isn't going to happen overnight. Daniel Kang was one of the fastest learners I had because she instantly got it. The first time we worked together, I, I spent about four hours with her. And I, you'll, you'll love this one, too. You know me well enough to know how I am. And, and, and she picked up on the swing stuffs really good. And uh, as a matter of fact, we went out and played at, at Anthem Country Club where I live, and uh, she made seven birdies and an eagle. I mean, it was like, wow, you, you're, you're ready to go. <laughs> are you a fast learner? And she says, you know, at the end of the four hours, she says, well, how much do I owe you? I said, well, you don't owe me anything today. I said, this, this was a feeling out for me to decide whether I want to work with you or you want to work with me. <laughs> and I said, you go back and practice a little and call me back up. And she called me the next day. So, yeah, we're going to work together. That's no problem. <laughs> but some people get it quickly. But even saying that, there's a cancer in everybody's swing. Everybody has a bad tendency in their swing, and they will fall back on it. I've watched you this past year work so hard with Jordan to try and get him back on track again, and it's not easy. I mean, and, and we, we die right along with them because, mm -hmm. you know, we're out there. We're, walk, we're trying to help them and do the best we can do. And, and sometimes I think we have to watch that we don't turn of the good players into robots because they haven't been playing good and we want them to get in these positions and we get too robotic. And I, I catch myself doing that sometime with people and I'll just stop and I'll say, all right, look, forget that. Just, just hit a shot. Right. Let me see you hit a draw. Well, what do you want me to do? I'll say, I don't give a damn. Just hit a draw. And, and of course they do it without thinking about it. And the guy, the guy says, okay. I said, now let me see you hit a high fade. They hit one. I said, so what'd you think about? And they said, I just thought about hitting a draw. <laughs> I fade. I said, yeah. well, sometimes that's the way we have to approach things because sometimes we get so wrapped up in the mechanics of it. 
And we as, we as coaches and teachers tend to, to fall into that trap every now and then myself. I do it. And, and that's when you got to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. we got to get back to playing golf, not playing golf swing. Yeah, I'll, I'll certainly point the finger back at myself and say there's um, a side of me that errs too much in that direction as well. And you're, you're dead right. You did right. You can't, you can't lose sight of the need for athleticism, the need for seeing something and letting, the, letting your body do the work. I think we're all guilty of that, and, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because right. I'm guilty of that. And I, mm-hmm. and the way I get get away from it, I just say, "Come on, man, let's just go play golf." You know how to play golf. You're right. too good a player. You won all these tournaments. I know you know how to play. Yeah. Let's just play. Back to DJ, real quick. And clearly, I'm coming from a place of ignorance here. On that side, you saw the need to make very little change. Am I wrong? Well, we made a I made a lot of change in the downswing. The path of the club coming through, the, the lower body work, the footwork, the way it, the club exits. In his case, Cam, you know, being so shut at the top, my father played like that. So I grew up seeing that position at the top. And the first time I ever worked with Dustin, he came in my office here in Vegas. We sat down and I said, look, don't worry. I'm not going to change you at the top of your swing. This is how, this is how you play. Now, to be, be that shut at the top, you have to have a lot of rotation. And he's got a beautiful uh, rotation of the body and a head release. And I said, you can go back in time. I said, I've seen it because my dad played that way. Trevino played that way. David Duvall was the number one player in the world. He played that way. A lot of guys have played from a shut position. I'm of the belief you could probably pay. If you had to error, I'd rather see you error shut than open. Because if it's wide open, you're going to have to be flinging that right hand in there to square it. If you're in a shut position, if you're strong enough and you can sequence up your arms matching the release of your torso, that club stays square for a long time. In Dustin's case, because he always drew the ball, he was a big right-to-left player, I didn't like how much he hung back coming through to let the toe release. We worked very hard in the early years to get on top of it with his chest and drive his right side through there. Mm-hmm. And then, what, four or five, nah, maybe four years ago, when I convinced him to go to a fade, as his predominant shot over a driver and showed him how to do it the proper way he used to be able to hold on and hit a big old white slice and I, I like to see a ball that just kind of slides starts left and slides to the right so you don't lose much distance and once he bought into that he, you can just see how much better he's gotten yeah, and then the sure. last thing with dj was oh three years ago i showed him at the end of the year his stats how his proximity to the hole from 150 yards was horrendous and he plays every hole from like under 150 yards, even five pars sometimes. And that's when he went to work on his wedge game. And he went to work hard on it. Uh, he bought himself a launch monitor. <laughs> that's a funny story we can get into. Also, him trying to figure out how to set up a launch monitor. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it. I'm intrigued. I know everyone else has that. Out there intrigued all, as well. I'll tell you in a minute. But what he did was he went back to an old school way of hitting wedges, like three different lengths of a backswing with all four wedges. Hmm and hit him and looked at the numbers. And he could get the numbers consistent on all four of his wedges with the waist high, three-quarter, full-length swing. And then you can add speed and take a little speed off. And now when you watch him practice, he's the longest warm-up guy I've ever had. He's an hour and 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the first 40, 45 minutes are nothing but wedge shots with a launch monitor there. And he now can say, you know, he's trying to hit an 80-yard shot, and he'll go, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. That's 81. And you look at the damn monitor, it'll be 80, 81, 82. And he'll hit one, and then, you know, you do that with Jordan, too. He'll hit one and goes, ooh, that was too far. That's going to be 86 or 7. And there it was, 86 or 7. 
the, the thing about it was he worked his tail on it and he took something that he was not very good at at all and became really good at it. And that's what everyone has to do. But the funny story was he had just started using it. We were at Doral a few years ago. Comes down on the T. Claude and I are there with him and AJ, and he, he hooks up the, the launch monitor, and he goes, man, it doesn't work. And Claude says, well, you did charge it last night. He goes, oh, you have to do that? I didn't know you have to charge them. I thought they were already charged up. <laughs> so he says to AJ, where's the plug-in out here? Now, we're in the middle of the range of Doral. I said, DJ, we're on a damn driving range. There aren't any plug-ins out here. <laughs> <laughs> priceless it's one of the things i love about the guy Absolutely. he just is who he is and he doesn't try and be anybody different it's one yeah. of the reasons he's so doggone good yeah no doubt no doubt so you spoke something there uh, and i want to unpack this uh, i was going to ask a little later but it's a great segue hard work dj got to work and spent the hours and for a recreational player or someone that's aspirational like collegiate player that wants to play at the highest level can you give perspective on your best players, how hard they work? Well, a lot of them are different. Ricky, before I had him, didn't like to practice a lot. He preferred to play, and he played a lot. Now he works on his game more because, you know, we had, had to make swing changes, and he has to constantly work on that. They all work pretty doggone hard. Your guy works as hard as anybody. Jordan Spieth, man, he, he, I get tired watching him. He makes <laughs> me tired. He works so hard. And I think, but they're all different. Like when Dustin is at home, he doesn't hardly practice. He plays. He doesn't hardly practice until he's ready to go out, and then maybe for five days before he's ready to come back out, he'll, he'll work on whatever he's going to work on. The important thing is with tour players is whatever they're not good at, that's what you have to work on. The average player never works on a part of his game that he's bad at because it's no fun. You know, he goes to the range and say he can't hit uh, fairway woods. We never hits one. He said, I, I can't hit a three-word, so I'm not hitting one. Well, it might help you to learn how to hit one. <laughs> and, and I think the, the good players, they want to take something they're not good at, and I just alluded that with, with Dustin with his wedges, and they want to get better at it. So the only way to get better is to work at it. But you have to have a method to how you practice. You have to have a method when you go to the range, this is what I'm going to work on today, whether it's tempo, whether it's mechanics, whether it's trying to get more speed through the ball, whether it's learning how to hit three-quarter shots, doesn't matter what it is, learning how to shape the ball different ways, different trajectories. You have to have a blueprint of what you're going out there to do. If you're going out there to just hit balls and have a conversation where well, you're wasting your time, you might as well go to the first tee because you're not going to get anything done. It's a Fred Couples, and I love Freddie, and I've worked with Freddie for years, and he's just the best guy, but Freddie doesn't practice much. He's had the same swing he's had for 30 years that I've known him. And so he goes to the range to have a conversation and, and talk to the guys. You know, he just wants to talk about sports, another thing. And everybody's trying to work, and Freddie's just talking. You know, he'll hit four or five balls, and he'll talk for 20 minutes. Then he'll hit another five or six balls and talk for 20 minutes. Oh, you ready to go? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go play. <laughs> and, you know, but everybody's different. Everybody has a different way. The majority of the guys today, because the competition is so fierce, they work their tails off. People don't see that when they, they come to a tournament. They, they don't see the hours and hours and hours of preparation all of these great players put in. I, I get a bad knock from all my friends. They'll say, you know, I don't know why you're any good at what you do. You don't do anything. I, I watch you on the range at the Masters, and all you're doing is telling the guys jokes and stuff. <laughs> and they're good jokes as well. <laughs> and I, I, said, well, I said, well, if we hadn't done our work before we got there, we're in trouble. I said, <laughs> 
I'm telling them jokes because they're a little uptight and anxious to go start. And I'm just trying to get them relaxed. I just want to get them relaxed and go. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about it. But you're not going to get better with, no matter who you are without putting in the time and effort. That's for darn sure. Beautiful. I, I, you've had a career filled with success. And I, I want to bring up maybe a, a pain point that I don't know of, but I'm going to ask about it. How is a failure or apparent failure set you up for a later success? Is there something in your career that you would consider foundational? I actually learned this from my dad. My dad, years ago, I'm going really back a long time ago, I uh, was working with a tour player, a young tour player from Australia, and he, gosh, he really helped him. The guy played beautifully, and all of a sudden, the guy went to someone else and started working with him. And I said to my dad one day, I said, I can't believe this guy, all the time he spent with him, dad, that he went in to someone else, and he's played so good. And, and he looked at me, he goes, well, what's wrong with that? And I said, well, I think it's a bunch of BS. I mean, <laughs> I, why, would, why would this guy do that? He goes, maybe he thought he learned as much as he could learn from me. Maybe he wanted to hear it another way. He says, Butch, don't take all that stuff so serious. You know, it just is what it is. Everybody, all golfers are a little different. And he says, sometimes you get stale. And sometimes they want to hear the same thing from someone else. So don't, don't take that as a slap in your face. You did everything you could do for the guy. The guy had success. You should feel very proud of the work you do. And, you know, I, I tease people when they, they come um, to my golf school all the time. I said, now, the best thing of coming here is from now on, you can blame me for every bad shot you hit. <laughs> you can, that doggone Butch Harmon, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, I've taken three guys to number one in the world, and two of them have fired me, so you're not going to bother me. Don't worry <laughs> about it. You, you, can, you can blame me. It's okay. <laughs> oh, that's the greatest. What's something that's difficult to teach and why? Uh, speed. Speed in this general uh, time, because that's all anybody cares about, especially at the am amateur level. They all want to hit the ball further. Well, we all want to hit the ball further. But you have to realize when you teach that each individual, no matter what level of golf they are, can only hit the ball so far. The secret is to get the club on the right path and make contact out of the middle of the club and have the proper equipment to allow you to get the maximum out of what you can get. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, that's all people talk about when they come take a lesson. Yeah, I need to hit the ball further. I need to hit the ball farther. And I go, Dad, damn right, I need to hit it further too. But it's look, it, it, what we got, we got to get the best out of what you have. Once I can get the best out of what you have, you're going to consistently play better. But, you know, you hear it on TV. We watch how far these guys hit the ball. I mean, I have so many people, Cam, come up to me and say, you know, I'm amazed Jordan Spieth is that good a player because he's so short. I said, so short? Have you ever seen the guy's numbers? <laughs> the heck are you talking about so short? Well, he's not Dustin Johnson or Brooks Koepka. Well, who the hell is? Right. You know, let's, let's get to reality here, guys. I learned a long time ago from my father, and this is something that, that everyone can learn from, that there's no pictures on that scorecard. There's a little box for a number, and nobody gives a damn what number you put in there, how you did it, unless you shoot 62 or 3. Nobody's even going to ask you how you did it. But that number is the important part. Mm -hmm. And the best players in the world know how to put two threes, and fours in there on a consistent level, even on the days they don't have it. And yet all an amateur talks about is, ah, you know, I want to hit the ball further. I want to hit the ball further. I need, you know, I always tell him, I said, yeah, some company makes a new driver, guarantees you three yards further. You're going to have it FedExed in overnight because you want the three yards. And so I think everybody, and I don't know about you, but everybody I talk to talks about speed. I just want to go hit it further and further and further. And you have to back them off. You have to say, look, let's hit the ball solid first. Right. Then through whether it be stretching, whether it be 
weight training, whether it be swinging weighted objects or something to try and generate more club head speed. Yeah, you can generate some, but you're not going to pick up that much more distance. Yeah, for sure. What you're doing, what you're going to do is get consistently better at every aspect of the game. I mean, how many times at your range are you giving a lesson and a guy will say to you, say, hey, Cam, how far is that red flag out there? My answer would always be, how would, how far would you like it to be? <laughs> if I tell you how far it is, you're not going to like disappointed, it. disappointed, <laughs> right? Exactly. I'm going to blame the range balls. All oh, these range balls are old or oh, they're poor yeah. quality. Because, or... I mean, they all have this uh, idea of how far. The most common fault an amateur makes when he plays golf, most common fault, I've said this my whole life, is they never take enough club. They hit a seven iron 150 yards one time in their life. And so now every time it's a 150 yard shot, well, maybe a seven iron. And they never carry the ball far enough unless they hit it the absolute best. And I always say, go down a club, swing easier, you'll play better. Oh, no, I, I want to hit seven iron there. Yeah, so for sure. Again, that little box, pal, nobody asked you what you hit. Yeah, I would echo those remarks wholeheartedly that, you know, there's so many other areas of lower hanging fruit for a player to put a, a lower number in that. Uh, whether it's the whole box or the total at the end of a round rather than speed. And yeah, speed is, is difficult and speed's only one of those factors that then produces the total distance the ball travels and you're far better off concentrating on that which provides solidness of contact right out of the sweet spot and that which provides the high launch and low spin and you can yield gains in uh, small technique changes or even technology to produce that. So that's that you hit the nail on the head. That's the secret. Launch it as high as you can with as little amount of spin on it. That's how you get distance. If we can shift conversations to players, the, mm -hmm. the, the audience out there, and I'm always excited to talk about separating skills, what makes great players great. And first off, a virtuoso question. Tiger Woods shows up at your doorstep. What were your first thoughts and how certain were you that he would make history? Well, I, I, can, I think I showed you the film from uh, August, did. I think it's 23rd of 1993, at my golf club in Lochinvar when he was a skinny little kid and he had just lost his, I think, quarterfinal match in the amateur over champions. Last match he would ever lose in, mm -hmm. a, in an amateur. And his dad brought him over because Greg had won the, the Open the month before and I, I got a lot of credit for that. And so his dad just brought him over for me to watch him hit. I'd never seen the guy play. I'd heard about him. And, uh, you know, we go on the range, and here he is, and he's swinging. And, uh, you know, he had unbelievable speed in those days. He, he, was, he could hit the ball further then than he could now with the equipment he was using. And uh, it was just impressive to see the kid swing. You could see it in the swing. You could see the motion. Now, you know, it was, he didn't have any strength. He was real flippy through the ball. Everything was on timing. I can remember asking him a question. I said, you know, he, well, was Tiger 17 or something at that time. Mm -hmm. I said, when you absolutely have to drive the ball in the fairway, everybody has a go-to shot. What is your go-to shot? He goes, I don't have one. I just hit it as hard as I can, and I go find it, and I hit it again. And I'm thinking, well, that's a cocky little SOB. <laughs> but the more I got to know him was when he was younger, that's how he played. And so the I spent two days with him, told his dad, look, it's been a joy. Thank you. And I said, if I can ever help you again, please call me. You know, this is long before the Internet and things like that, where you could send stuff through your phones and all that stuff. It didn't even exist in those days. And so he called me and he said, look, I'd really like to turn my son over to you. I think I've taken him as far as I can, and we don't have much money. And, I, you know, I said to him, I said, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd be honored to do it. And I think I can really help your son, and I'll make a deal with you. I'm not going to charge you a dime until he turns pro, and then I'll send you a bill. And we'll see how it goes. And that's exactly what happened. And the way we did it when he went to Stanford is that 
we, he would, I, I actually gave him a, a camcorder to record his thing. And because of the, the rules, I had a coach said I had to give him, I had to give him three camcorders so everybody could use them on the team, which I was fine. <laughs> so I bought three of them. So, you know, sent them to him. <laughs> Incident alike. He, he would, he would film it. He'd FedEx it overnight to me. And I'd look at the film, I'd pick up on the phone and call him back. And, and this is how we started to do it because we didn't spend a lot of time together. And Tiger Woods is a really quick learner. I mean, he, he's gifted. He understands golf. Uh, he has a pretty good knowledge of the golf swing, uh, and he, but he's gifted. And he, he works so hard. I mean, he and Greg Norman probably were the two hardest workers I've ever worked with. I mean, a lot of people didn't realize it because they didn't see him. And it was a real insight to me on what you can do with someone who's young and someone who has a desire to get better and the talent. Now, having said that, when you work with incredibly talented people, you better be sure what you're telling them to do is the right thing because there's no guesswork. This isn't like working with a 15 handicap when you, when you say, well, I think if you do this, this will work. Well, that didn't work. So I think if you do this, this will work. Well, that didn't work. So in your experimenting, when you're dealing with a quality golfer, a top-of-the-line golfer, you better be 100% sure in your own capability that you've diagnosed what you see what you see is what needs to happen, and can you articulate this to the person you're, you're t- talking to so they understand why they need to do this because you've explained it to them. And I think that's the most important part. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there, Earl, and I guess a broad question would be parental involvement. And I've worked with a whole host of U.S. <laughs> champions and great youth players and seen the gamut mm-hmm. of great parent mm-hmm. interaction both from a coaching standpoint, so looking at it through my lens and then what the players tell me as well, but can you shed some light on, on Earl's <laughs> relationship and what you, what, what you would consider best case uh, scenario I, for I, a parent? I like you saying great parent involvement because there isn't much of that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of parent over-involvement. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Earl and I had a, a bond. We are both Vietnam, Vietnam combat veterans, so we had kind of a, a bond there in the military and uh, – you know, I was very honest with him at all times. I, I'm, you know me well enough to know I just cut to the point. To, yeah. to faith. I'm not a beat around the bush guy. And I was always very positive and stuff. And we got, got along very well. And, and, you know, a lot of people didn't have that relationship with her. I never really had a problem with it. I think in this day and age, parents are too involved. And I think they get, now I'll give you an example. I'm not going to use any names, but I had a young man came to me a few years ago. A friend of mine had asked me to watch a friend of his, his son because he was a good player. And the father brought him out, and uh, we were sitting in my office, and I said, well, young man, I'm not even going to say his first name because I don't want to implement anybody. I said, young man, tell me, uh, tell me about your game. What's, what kind of shots do you hit? And the father would answer every question. The young man never got to answer a question. And I, and I finally said to dad, hey, hold on here, man. I want to hear him say, he goes, oh, no, he's really good. Wait till you see. Mr. Harmon, his kid is, my son's really good. He's really good. And he must have said it 20 times. So I said, okay, I'm thinking in my brain, we're not getting anywhere here. Let's go, you know, because I'm just trying to pick his brain on how the kid plays and stuff. So let's go hit some balls. So he's hitting balls. And I'm at, every time I'd ask him a question, the father would answer the damn question. Finally, I'd had enough. I said, look, this isn't going to work. I said, I need to hear your son tell me what he's thinking, what he's feeling, what he's trying to do. Oh, I know his swing. I watch him practice. I help him with everything. You know, he's really good, and he's really good. 
Well, and finally, I said, I said to the, the young man, excuse me, I got called the guy with the back about 20 feet behind him. I said, look, you're going to have to leave. He goes, what do you mean I have to leave? I got to see what happens. I said, no, you're, you're, you're killing this lesson. I said, I can't help him if I can't get any feedback from him. And you're not doing him any favors telling him how good he is. Okay. Oh, he's really good, isn't he? And finally, I said to the guy, I said, look, you may not know this, but I actually have seen really good. <laughs> and your son isn't. <laughs> It doesn't mean that he can't be someday, but right now you've put these false beliefs in his head. And second of all, I can't get him to answer a question because you won't shut up. So mm-hmm. now you're either going to have to go in my office, you can use my computer, go down to the clubhouse, have lunch, sign my name, that's fine. But this lesson's over with if you stay here. Yeah. We flew all the way out here and I have to hear what's going on. I said, I'll tell you afterwards what we did. I'll show you the film, blah, blah, blah. So finally, he re- reluctantly, he left. Now, here's the sad part. When I went back to watching his son hit some balls, the guy goes, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Harmon. This is going to be so much better without my dad there. Yeah. And he says, I love my dad, but gosh, he just, and, you know, and we see that all the time. Dr. Welford. Nowadays, I think these parents are trying to live vicariously through these kids. Mm-hmm. And I think it hurts them. My father was a great player and a great teacher. And if we wanted to practice, fine, we'd practice. If we wanted to ask him a question, fine, he'd help you. But that was it. There was no no pushing you, no do this, you know, how come you're not doing that? If you wanted the help, he was there to give it to you. Right. If, if you didn't ask, he wasn't going to push it. And people think in our family, because myself and my three younger brothers all became successful golf pros, that we got pushed into it. It was the complete opposite. We weren't pushed into it. We just admired our dad so much. That's why we wanted to be that way. And I think these parents have got to learn. To back off and let a kid be a kid. I, I was in Spartanburg, South Carolina, this past week for a good friend of mine, Rob Chapman from Augusta. Who yeah, Bobby Chapman. Yeah, yeah, the Bobby Chapman Junior event. They had ninety-three unbelievable junior events. You've probably been to it before. Yeah, mm-hmm. in Spartanburg, and I, I gave a speech to the to the kids, and I asked if I could give a speech to the parents. And they said, well, we don't really have time there. But a lot of the parents were hanging around. And I, I said to the kids the way I started my I said, look, first thing you need to do is you've got to thank your mom and dad for not only the financial support of allowing you to play in these tournaments, how difficult it is. And usually it's going to be your mom to, to take you to the, all these tournaments. And I said, second of all, for any of you parents that are here, I said, you need to let your kids be your kids. You need to let them be a 16, 17-year-old boy. You need to back off a little and not be there 24-7, cleaning his clubs for him, giving him this. I said, just because you bought the new Cameron putter and you're driving up to the course in a new Denali that you gave the kid, he's going to play good. Let the kid find out who he is and how good he can be. And, and a couple of parents took offense to that. And they, they said something to me afterwards. And I said, well, you and I can just agree to disagree. Then that's my opinion. And that's mm. what I was giving you. Yeah, beautiful. And you see it all the time because you teach more juniors than I do. Without, without doubt. And I think that all parents should look to err on the side of less versus more involvement, rec- oh. uh, recognize their parents first and uh, their facilitators second and facilitators of what? Access to great coaching, access to great tournament. Right. And it, as necessary, I like to deputize them, make them aware as you did with Earl Woods on Here's yeah. the pathway. Here's the developmental arc. This is where we are, and this is where we're going to get to. And here's how they'll get to the fastest. Unfortunately, I think that there's a little bit of, I guess, accelerated development need based on a need to impress college coaches at the chance that they might earn a, a spot or, or, or a higher ranking. And so this 
this desire and this impatience is pushed then or subjected on the kids and 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 over involvement is a greater fault than under involvement, right? Is it ever? And, oh, and, that, and that's the best. That's the best way to put it. Over involvement. I like that terminology. So you mentioned as you started telling that story about parental involvement that this player was good. And what I want to unpack right now is this separating skills question that I talk about so much. And you may have a different term for it, but some call it competitive advantage. And to move from good to great, to world-class, and then even beyond that, to your players, best in class, meaning the best of the best. What do you feel from a physical standpoint differentiates the best from the best? And what do you feel from a non-physical, whether that be off the golf course behaviors or as you termed it, golf IQ? Well, I think the difference between great players and really good players is more mental because they're all good. They all can hit shots. They can all play. And you see it on the range, don't you? I mean, time again, you walk the range and you're... No. Well, you'll look at a guy and you say, how can this guy not win? Right. You know, and then you go watch him on the golf course and you can see why. So to me, the difference between the really great ones and good ones is more mental. They know themselves very well. They know how to get the job done. The secret for for a great player is the weeks he doesn't have it and he wins a tournament. Because he turns 72 and 3 into 67, 8, and 9 every time he plays. Because he knows his game. He knows how to get around the golf course. He knows how to score. He knows how to put a, the number in the scorecard. Mm-hmm. And it's how you handle pressure situations. And as a coach to the good players, as you and I are, we have to have those conversations with our players after a time when they had a chance to win and didn't get it done. Now, you don't do it as soon as they walk off the golf course on Sunday afternoon. You may do it the middle of the next week. You may say, hey, let's sit down and let's talk about that last round on Sunday and, and X, Y, Z happened. You know, what was your train of thought when you were playing this shot, these holes? And you get a little bit of an understanding of what's going on in their head, and that's how we can try and help them. But they all look good swinging, especially in this day and age, because coaching has gotten so good. Everybody mechanically has pretty good swings now compared to the old days where they're all self-taught. Right. The other thing is, and, and I alluded on it just a second ago, it's the ability to turn 72 and 3 into 68. And the really, really good ones can do that all the time. They're amazing, aren't they? They get it done with a different set of weapons every time they've won. Your man, Jordan Speed, to me, is amazing. I watched him some days when he looked like he couldn't hit a shot, and at the end of the day, he shoots 65. Mm-hmm. And then you'd, and you'll say, well, why? Just because he putted good. Well, shoot, how do you think you shoot a good score? <laughs> Everybody putts good. I mean, my God, do you think you can shoot 63, 4, 5 without making any putts? Come on. Can't say a guy just putts because what he did was he got around the course. Yeah. He got himself around the course and then he go to the range and, well, boy, I drove it like crap, so I got to go work on this and boom. But that's what separates the really good ones from just the good ones. It's the ability to get something out of their game when they don't have it, their ability to handle that tremendous pressure coming down the stretch, as my dad used to say, when you're standing on that. 72nd hole and it's a tight driving hole and there's water on the left and OB on the right and you know that camera's burning a red light hole in your forehead because you know you're on TV and to be able to go ahead and make that swing and the great ones can do it. That's why I said a little while ago, how many guys do you know that have won actually a bunch of tournaments but they never won one with a lead? Yeah. Because they didn't feel comfortable with the lead. They had to come from behind where they could freewheel it. Great players have the ability to get the job done. That's the the bottom line. Sometimes they can't tell you how. And the perfect example I will give you is Tiger Woods when he won six USGA events in a row, six years in a row, three juniors, three amateurs. No one's ever done that. 
What you don't know is every one of those six titles that he won, the final match went to the 18th hole or beyond, and he figured out a way to get it done. He reached down inside his body, whether it was two down or five down or whatever. He knew he was going to get it done. He didn't know how, but I'm going to get this done. And you can't teach that. you got to have that in your heart. Yeah. Well, that brings to mind a question that I had, and maybe you've just answered that, that you can't teach that. I was going to ask, do you have a unique way of, I guess, some advice for the listeners out there to try and develop that mindset of big-time players make big-time plays on big stages, the ability to stand there when you know, you've got to perform. Well, I think you look at any sport. Look at the greatest quarterbacks of all time that we've ever seen in football. I mean, guys that that I know will say they they go in the huddle with Joe Joe Montana and they just looked at him or with Tom Brady or with Peyton Manning, whoever you think is your your best Mm -hmm. quarterback you've watched play, and they're in the huddle and they're – there's 10 guys looking at him, and you can see the look in his eyes that he's got it. Yeah. Uh, don't worry, guys. We're going to do this. I'm going to get this ball to you, and we're going to win this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you a little story that Phil Mickelson had when he won his last Masters. You remember the shot he hit on the 13th hole from the pine straw between the two little trees with a six iron? For sure. And uh, this is a story I don't, I'm not even sure that Phil's ever told, and I'm not talking out of school because mm-hmm. it's nothing bad about it. Bones wanted him to lay up his caddy. And they were going back and forth and back and forth. And Bones wanted him to lay up. And Phil, Phil wants to hit it. You know how Phil is. He wants to try every shot. And, and, and the way Bones <laughs> gas and no break, right? <laughs> yeah. Phil, Phil leaned into Bones and he said, Bones, there comes a point in time in every great championship where you got to suck it up and hit the shot. I'm sucking it up. I'm hitting the <laughs> shot. And we're winning this championship. And he knocked it to about five feet. He actually missed the putt, which was amazing. But see, that's what great players can do. That's because they know they've got it. They know they can do it. I mean, I guarantee you, when your man won in Hartford, he hold that bunker shot, even though he he, 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 he and the G-spot, as I call him, his caddy, <laughs> they chest bump. I thought they were going to hurt each other. They're so excited. He's in there trying to hold the damn thing. He's not trying to just get it out and have a six-footer. He's in there going to hit this bunker. You know, I can do it. I got a good lie, straightforward bunker. I can make this. This is how they think. Right. This is how the great one thinks. And the more positive thoughts you have, the, the more you find out that you can do this. The more you do it, the more confidence you get. Yeah. If you're negative, uh, I, the thing that kept me from being a very good player when I played the tour, because I was a really good ball striker, well, I was hot-headed. And I would get upset at myself, and I'd beat myself up and get down on myself. And it kept me from being a good player. Because I was such a perfectionist that I thought I had to hit every shot perfect. Now, in the long run, it's made me a much better coach and teacher because I am a perfectionist. And I demand excellence out of my players. And I work so hard to get it out of them. But these guys, you can't teach good. You're either good or you're not good. You can make good better and you can make better great. Mm-hmm. But you gotta, you got to believe in yourself. You know, sometimes people say, well, that guy's really cocky. He said, yeah, that's why he's good. Right. I'll give you a perfect example of a guy, and this is not a put-down to him because I really happen to like him, Ian Poulter. Ian Poulter is an incredible incredible competitor. In my mind, Ian Poulter is really not that good. But Ian Poulter thinks he's really good, thus he really is good. And you can't teach that. That's something that he has that I'm amazed at, and I try and tell people, this is what you need to be like. This guy right here, he's probably average at best if you look at all the stats of what he does. But look at what he gets out of his game because yeah. he thinks he's really good. And you, if you don't think you're any good or if you don't think you can hit a shot, guess what? You're not hitting it. 
Yeah. When you told the Phil Nicholson story right there, it brought to mind something that Brad Faxon told me on one of the very first episodes of the In Your Edge podcast, and that was, it's more important to be decisive than right. Oh, yeah. I think what you demonstrated right there in Phil's story was he was demonstrating a decisiveness that told him that he was certainly going to execute that shot. Yep. And that for sure is a mindset that I've come to know because I don't, I don't possess that other than in doing what I'm really confident doing. And that is in coaching. But when, when you, I start, I start talking or, or investigating back to my own, I guess, performance history, playing golf, there were very few rounds of golf, very few shots that I can pull out where I stepped to each shot and had that mindset of certainty and determination that you just described. Yeah. Well, I think we all, we all get that to me the and I use this word a lot with all caliber players. It's the most important one. It's commitment. Mm -hmm. Whatever the shot you're going to hit, you have to commit a hundred percent to it. Mm -hmm. You have to be a hundred percent committed to the shot you're going to hit. Doesn't mean you're going to pull it off all the time, but if you go up there with about 60% commitment saying, Oh my God, that, that OB on the right. I, oh, I got to aim more to the left. And you know, I'm thinking about the OB or something. Well, you're not going to hit a good shot, right? You've got to commit. Uh, you see it more in the short game. Than you do in the long game to a tough little pitch shot or something. You have to commit to the strike. You have to commit to the speed that it takes to hit this shot. And the average person has very little commitment. Going back to the other aspect you, I guess, differentiated on good, great to world-class, the ability to get the job done. I talk at length with the players that I coach about developing multi-tooled uh, weapons, if you will, like a Swiss army knife. It, yeah. What's your best means or adv of advice to help a person grow that or cultivate that? Well, I think number one, you have to be honest with them about their capabilities, what they're good at, what they're not good at, and you have to be able to communicate that to them, mm -hmm. make them understand it, and you make them understand why you're saying that. You're not trying to put somebody down. I'm just being honest with you. This is what you're good at. This is what you're not good at. So we've got to work on this, and we have to we have to make this something better. But you can't you can't be a yes man, especially at the level of the, the higher echelon players. You can't just be a yes man. If, they're, if there's something they're not doing right or something, the way they've done something that's wrong or something, you got to tell them. you got to be able to communicate it and let them know that. Yeah, for sure. So a uh, quick question here. Uh, what, what's an area that you see players, and this could be a recreational answer or even if it goes into professional ranks as well, what's an area in practice that you, spend, you see players spending far too much time on? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say when they're on the range practicing, that they don't get target orientated, mm -hmm. that they aim at the same area every time. I'd rather see them hit four or five shots over here to a target to the right and then change and go to the target to the left and go to the target here and there, because then they have to go through a little bit of a pre-shot routine. They've got to actually get into there and thinking about the shot. Sometimes if you just continue to aim it at the same thing, it doesn't do you any good. I like to move them around, and, and I think that they, they get complacent. It's, and this is interesting. I don't know if you agree with this, and this is true more with a recreational golfer. Aiming at a target on the right is much more easier for them than aiming at one on the left. Yeah, for sure. If you're right-handed, mm -hmm. because it just feels like you can swing out to it, and you say, okay, turn over here and aim to the left, which should be the same swing because mm -hmm. you're setting your body on a target line, but they have a hard time with it. So I, I think I see that a lot, and, and I try and get people out of 
just going in the same area every time because they don't pay any attention. They're set up, their ball position and aim, even though they got sticks on the ground or stuff like that, which we have most of them do. So I think that's probably the most common mistake I see. Another quick question. Best ball striker and why that you've ever seen? All time, probably Ben Hogan, consistently of the strike, the path of the club. Other than Ben Hogan, I would say Lee Trevino. Mm. Those were the two best ball strikers I think I've ever seen. And that's not a put down to the Jack Nicholas's and Tiger Woods and everybody that's really good. Those two. And the reason I say that, Cam, is their trajectory of their shots was so similar. Uh, You know, in the old days when we played, you, you didn't have a range. You had caddies. You might have 30 caddies out there at a tournament shagging balls. Balls going everywhere. And, and, and you know yourself when you played good, you could pretty much hit every ball towards a caddy. But some would be high, some would be low, some would be mishit. With Trevino and Hogan, I think if you hung a hula hoop in the air, every ball would go right through it. Mm-hmm. Their, their control of the strike, their control of the trajectory of the shot, no, any shot they were trying to hit, it just was, to me, so impressive to watch. Modern day time, uh, Tiger in his prime was amazing. Uh, had the ability to hit every iron shot pin high, which means you had total control of your flight and your distance. Mm. Uh, it was unbelievable. If I looked at it today, I'm not sure there's one that I would say is a great ball striker all the time. So yeah. I'll go back to those two older players cool. that I thought were phenomenal. Cool. You spent time around Sevi Ballesteros. You've already mentioned that. Would he then it qualify is. as the best short game player? Uh, he's in that category. Uh, I'd put he and Olathabel in there. Uh, uh, Greg Norman doesn't get credit for a short game. His short game, I don't know how much time you watched, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal around the greens. Mick, Mickelson, obviously, phenomenal. Uh, Seve, Seve and Ollie had an unbelievable feel for shots, and they both did it completely different. I said this earlier. Seve was more early wrist set like Phil and Greg were. Olathabel was more of a late wrist set down cock player. But the, the thing that used to impress me the most, and I spent so much time around Seve and Ollie, and they were cocky about it when they practiced it. And they'd, they'd get a little bit, they'd say, uh, Bush, uh, Bush, you want the ball to bounce two times and stop, or you want it to go three times and release? What what do you want? And I'd, I'd kind of look at them, and I want to call it BS, you know, saying, yeah, uh-huh, really. I said, all right, make it bounce two times and stop. Damn it, they'd make it bounce two times and stop. <laughs> and I'd say, well, make it one one time and release, one time and release. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> this is some kind of talent. Now, the thing that made it even more unbelievable with Olathabel, he'd then take a three iron and hit the same damn shots. <laughs> Where does that come from? Did, did you ever? Uh, hands. It comes from everything with their hands. If mm-hmm. you watch them, because I've filmed them. I've got film of all of them doing this, and it's all in their hands. It's all in their hand action, and they, they work their hands differently. But if you, if you put their grip, all the way down to right in front of the club face, like mm-hmm. a six-inch club, yep. and watched them make the swings. You could see what the, 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 the angle of the club face, what it did on all these shots they're trying to do. Now, you have to incorporate speed. Some people call it striking a match, you know, the way the, they use the bounce of the club versus the leaning edge. But it was just phenomenal to watch. And it, it was, you know, thousands of times of repetitions doing it. And a lot of times they – they would try and articulate it to you how they were doing it. And you'd kind of look at it and say, well, that, you know, to me, I'm not about to tell them, but it didn't quite look like you were doing that, but, but they could get it done, but they could get, but I'm telling you what, it was impressive. 
Unreal. I mean, a guy starts asking you, asking you how many bounces you want the damn thing to make and what you want the ball to do after that, and then they just go ahead and do it like yeah. it's nothing. Yeah, I just go, man, I, I don't know a damn thing about the short game. <laughs> <laughs> it would certainly make the hair on my neck stand that's up. And that's what I say. I learned as much from all these guys that I taught as they learned from me, and that's, that's the great give and take that you and I have had the opportunity to be around the best players in the world and to see it. Yeah, and then fi- and finally on the, the skill side, the best putter and why. Nicholas and Tiger were the two best pressure putters I've ever seen. They had the ability down the stretch in a major championship on Sunday afternoon, and there comes a point in time, usually early in the back nine, where they've really got it going and they've missed a green and they got a 10 or 12-footer to save par. And if they miss it, the momentum kind of goes away. They made it every time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, it's a will. It's almost like they could will the ball in the hole. They, they just could make the ball go in the hole. It, 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 sometimes if you watch the last open that Tiger Woods won, was it 2012 at Torrey Pines? Yes. Is that what it was? Correct. The putt he made on the 72nd hole, there's a great film of the ball at ground level, and this ball's bouncing all over the place, and this ball's guaranteed going to miss on the right. And it looks like the hole just reached out and grabbed it. <laughs> and Tiger and Jack did that hundreds of times, hundreds of times. And they would do it every time. Mm-hmm. And it just was amazing. The other thing I think in, in watching Tiger especially was I used to time him with my watch when I, in the days before I was doing a lot of television and I'd walk the course with him. He would take as much time on an important putt on the first hole as he would on the 72nd hole. The routine would be the same. The number of practice strokes were the same. The number of looks were the same. When he pulled the trigger was the same. It was, it was within a second mm-hmm. every time. So there was never any hesitation in what he was doing. There was never any negative movement in his body to what he was doing. He, he had an idea what kind of putt he was going to hit, and he just stand there and go. Tiger played in pictures. I don't know how Jordan does it because I'm, I'm not privy to that conversation, but Tiger would say he would stand behind the ball, and I, he said, I could see the trajectory. I could see the shape. I could see the what I wanted to do, the spin on the ball, and then I'd just go do it. And I think it's a great way to look at stuff because the, the average player stands behind the ball and they see the OB and they see the water, and a good player doesn't even know any of those exist. Mm-hmm. So a concentration level in how you handle a situation is interesting. I can remember way back in one of the U.S. Opens at uh, Pinehurst in the old days, back when Duval was playing really good, and I was doing the, the TV, and it was on the, uh, let's see, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14th hole. And it was about 180 yards shot into the green. And Colin Montgomery was getting ready to play. And there was a big stands behind the green. And Colin stops and he's throwing his hands up in the air. Because <laughs> somebody, <he> <laughs> somebody 225 yards away was moving and he saw him. And I said, you know, here's the difference between Colin Montgomery, David Duvall, and Tiger Woods. I said, Colin Montgomery from, from the stands that's 225 yards away sees everybody in the damn stands moving. David Duvall doesn't see any of them. Tiger Woods doesn't know the stands are there. Mm-hmm. He's so focused on what he's trying to do. And, and I, I always thought that was so interesting. And I've had that conversation with Monty because we do a lot of television together for Sky. And he just say, you know, I just everything bugged me. <laughs> I said, yeah. well, no kidding. <laughs> it sure did. <laughs> Final question here. It's a quick turnaround question. I think it's safe to assume that when things are going well, there's a level of uh, inertia. The Rolling Stone guys know Moss, I guess is a good way to say it. 
but sometimes that's not the case. And at, sometimes it's at an event. You, you got to get dirty. Can you remember any of those situations? Yeah, I can give you a couple. I can remember, uh, let's see, the U.S. Open to Beth Page when Tiger won on mm-hmm. Saturday. He didn't play his best. And uh, he came to the range, actually hit balls till it was dark. And uh, he was the last one out there. And he's leading the U.S. Open, but he wasn't happy with that. And he was getting the club stuck a little behind him. Mm-hmm. So we go to the range, and he's going, damn it, Butchie, I, I couldn't hit this shot. I said, yeah, I know you're getting that club stuck. But I know it's stuck behind me, damn it, but tell me why. Why is it stuck there? <laughs> I know it. That's what, and I said, oh, okay, here's the deal. We're not leaving this range, even if you got to hit balls in the dark, and we're going to fix this. And we did. But it was so funny the way he said it because he didn't let me finish my statement. I was going to explain to him, the cub's stuck behind you because you're doing X, Y, or Z. And I said, you got the cub. I know it. Damn it. That damn cub's stuck behind me. <laughs> get, get me out of it. <laughs> and so I think it's funny how you – and once again, this goes back to knowing your player. You have to know your player uh, – like, Ricky Fowler never hits balls after a round. And sometimes he, he has some faults. And I said, Richie, let's go hit some balls now. Work on it in the morning. Greg Norman would want to go work on it right now. DJ doesn't hit a lot after it, but if he has a bad round, he wants to go hit it. Tiger always wanted to go to the range. Played good or bad, he wanted to go hit balls. So I think it's, it's interesting on in how you do stuff. Phil is not one that wants to hit balls after he plays. He'd rather... Think about it and come out and, uh, you know, think about what planet the course is on and stuff and Mm -hmm. come out the next morning and and do it. So everybody's a little different. But that one time, and and it really sticks in my mind with Tucker, it was just funny the way he snapped. (laughs) Snapped at me because he didn't let me finish what I was going to say. Fix it now. (laughs) And I said, all right, let's calm down a little here. Let me explain it to you. Butch, you've been amazingly accommodating. You're uh, the best storyteller. And I guess what I know now is you do an amazing Spanish accent and you've got impersonations <laughs> to boot. We've, uh, we've had a conversation filled with gold and I'm immensely thankful for knowing you for as long as I've known you and we'll continue to enjoy these, enjoy these conversations. Where can people learn more about you and what you do at your uh, your schools? You know, my uh, my golf schools in, in, in Las Vegas, you can go to butcharman.com and go on the web and see our schools. Uh, I teach, uh, everybody affiliates us with tour players and we spend more time dealing with the amateur players than we do. And so they can get a hold of me anyway that way. And and finally, Kim, uh, I've, you and I have been friends for a long time. I, I've always admired your work. I love all the work you've done. You've done so much great work with junior players that I don't think a lot of people realize. And it's, a, it's an honor to be your friend. It's, it's even a, a better honor to watch you work. And I've learned a lot from watching you, Kyle. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks, Butch. Appreciate it. Be well. You got it, buddy. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. <laughs>